Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I got to say, maybe Christmas is easier to pick music for, but uh, when you get around this time of the year, this Easter season, thinking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there's just so much good music that drives home those truths. And so, praise team, thank you so much for leading us in those songs that really reflect what we're going to look at in our text in just a few moments. Do you realize that we are all products of our experiences? The things that we've had happen to us shape our attitudes, our behaviors. They shape the way we handle things, the way we decide on things, and the way we do things. Let me give you for an example. My mom never threw anything away that she thought she could use again. Never. In fact, I may have shared this before, but it's worth noting again, we helped her clean out her spice drawer about four years ago, a year or so before she passed away. She had a spice in there that's expiration date was 1987. We found it in 2017. So like 30 years. It's amazing. She just never threw anything away. But why is that? Why did she keep everything that she could possibly, maybe, might, one day, possibly use again? Well, it's because in my mom's experience, she grew up in the home with a Baptist pastor and a mom who was a hairdresser. But for her early life, her grandmother lived in their home, and they took care of her grandmother. Her grandmother lived through the Depression, where everything that you had, you kept. It didn't matter what it was. You didn't throw anything away because you might need it again. And so she suffered through that. My grandparents suffered through that. And so my mom at a very early age was impacted by the experiences of her grandmother and by the experiences of her parents. And so she developed a, a, a desire or need to save things. That was not the easiest thing in the world when we went through her house uh, and, and, tried to, and tried to deal with all the stuff that was there. And, and so we react to that. I've been shaped by that experience. My wife uh, would like it that I would throw something, more things away than what, you know, what maybe I do throw away. But I've been shaped by my experiences, and so have you. This text that we're going to look at is a text about experiences, but not ours. Things that Christ experienced that then result in something glorious and wonderful for us. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, there are some... Uh, parts of this passage of Scripture that are very clear, and we're going to unpack those in a few moments. There are also also some parts of this passage that are uh, notoriously difficult to interpret and understand exactly what's going on. 
Let me read to you from uh, Martin Luther's remarks and then from several commentators regarding this passage of Scripture, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Martin Luther wrote many years ago, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what, just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it. That's Martin Luther. How about this one? Uh, about verses 19 and 20, uh, one commentator writes, The meaning of this phrase is much disputed. On a third, we get his words were no doubt clear to those who first heard them, but they have been hard for later generations to understand. And how about this one that sums it all up? A fourth commentator framed the problematic text this way. The exegetical questions basically come down to these. Where did Christ go? To whom did he speak? What did he say? Different answers to each of these questions can be found, resulting in a labyrinth of exegetical options each of which has no clearly overwhelming claim to certainty, with one commentator calculating 180 different exegetical combinations in theory. Now, that's basically verses 19, 20, and 21 that are the disputed or uncertain verses. So what do we do with a text like this? I could spend the next hour or so detailing to you hermeneutical and exegetical options for the text, but that wouldn't help you. Certainly wouldn't help you that are watching from home, and I'm not sure it would help me either. What I would like to say is this, we must not let what we don't know or what is unclear about Scripture affect or keep us from uh, applying what we do know from Scripture. There are some very clear specifics in this scripture that are very helpful and very encouraging. And there are some places that are a little more obscure and difficult. Let me try to answer three of the more obscure questions, not with certainty, but with a little bit of explanation that might help us get to the part of the passage that is very clear. So where did Jesus go? He went to preach to spirits in prison. The Apostles' Creed states that Jesus descended into hell. That is not, uh, that, that is a, that it's a historically um, uh, held belief uh, among Orthodox Christians that Jesus descended to hell from the cross. But the t Bible doesn't say with clarity what he did there, why he went there, and what's going on. And indeed, this passage of Scripture probably indicates that he went to something like that, but it doesn't use the word for hell, it uses the word for prison. So what do we do with that part of the passage of Scripture? Well, we believe it, and we believe that Peter knew what he was talking about, but because we're not privy to maybe some of the other conversations Peter had had with this church, may not be as clear as exactly what's going on there. In any case, Jesus experienced hell on the cross. I think that is utterly clear. He was rejected by his Father because Jesus became sin for us, and the text definitely articulates that. And so Jesus went and proclaimed something to some group of demons or some group of people in this text. So why would Jesus preach? This has been a troubling passage of Scripture, right? Because we as good Baptists and Protestants believe that you need to be preached the gospel and you need to respond to the gospel prior to death before you have an opportunity to enter into heaven. Uh, some have used this passage of Scripture to hold to what is called post-mortem evangelism or that Jesus preached or someone preached to those who had died and gave them an opportunity to, to, to convert after death. 
Now, maybe that could be true, but this text doesn't articulate that. And I don't think Scripture teaches post-mortem evangelism. In fact, the word that is used for Jesus preaching is not the word euangelion, which means preaching the good news. It's the word caruso, which means a proclamation or a declaration. It, it doesn't necessarily invite a response. It could be that Jesus just went and declared who he was and, and what he had done to those who needed to know that or to those who uh, should have known that. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a moment in, a, in, I think, a little bit more of a clear way. Now, here's the third question. What about baptism saving and the analogy of Noah? This is a challenging analogy, and it opens up all kinds of options, exegetical options, for those spirits that, that Jesus would preach to. We're not going to get into that in any detail tonight, but it does use a phrase, Peter uses a phrase here, that baptism saves you. And so that troubles us too, because as Baptists, we believe that baptism is an illustration of your salvation, that it's an outward testimony, that it says to a congregation, this is, uh, this is who I am now, I've been redeemed by Christ. But baptism itself doesn't result in your redemption. And yet Peter says something that, that you know, may trouble us here. But catch this, Peter qualifies the statement about baptism in two specific ways. He says, baptism does not save you as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it's not a physical washing. Baptism is not a physical washing that cleanses you, thereby you going into heaven. Our problem is not that we're dirty physically, and that's why we can't be in a right relationship with God. Our problem is that we're sinful spiritually, and that's why we need cleansing. And so our cleansing has to be more than just a physical action. So Peter qualifies it in that sense. And then catch the way he qualifies it again. He says, but it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, what Peter's saying is, baptism is a depiction of the resurrection of Christ, which is exactly how we uh, adopt and apply baptism in our context here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. We believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And because he died with our sins and rose again to new life, we get the life that he uh, gave us through his death, burial, and resurrection. We're going to talk about that in just a moment as a clear teaching of the text. And so baptism pictures that. And when we're baptized, when we say to an entire congregation of people, I've trusted in Jesus and I'm going through the waters of baptism, we're appealing to God by being a witness. It's our verbal testimony of our Christian experience and Christian faith and newfound Christian faith. So those are some clarifications. Well, let's figure out what we can know very clearly from this passage of Scripture. Some, some helpful analysis, and this goes a little deeper than I normally go in terms of analyzing a text, or at least analyzing it from a sermonic standpoint. But in the text, there are three specific verbs that are in the aorist passive. Now, that won't mean a lot to anybody who's not an English major. Aorist is the Greek, uh, uh, Greek term for past. So it's a past tense. It means it happens once. Passive, you know what that means. It's when the subject is the one being acted upon, not when the subject is the one doing the action. Hence why the three verbs that Peter uses to explain Jesus' experiences are passive verbs. It means that God or someone did an action to Jesus, Jesus experienced it, and it resulted in something. And there are three specific ones that really help us unpack what is going on in the text. The first one happens in verse 
19, or the latter part of verse 18. So we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And here's the verse, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The verb being put to death in the flesh is an aorist passive, and essentially it means that somebody, some people, the Jewish authorities, the Roman, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, the Roman authorities, put Jesus to death. So here's the point. Jesus experienced death on the cross for our sins. Christ experienced death for our sins. So here's what I want you to catch. This is something Jesus allowed to happen to him. Jesus isn't the active agent in his death. Of course he's not, right? He did not commit suicide. And God is not intentionally the active agent in his death either. Although God sent Jesus to die on the cross, who was it that put Jesus on the cross? It was the Roman, relig- the Roman authorities and the Jewish religious leaders. They're the ones who put Jesus to death. And Jesus, being Lord, being King, being Savior, being Master, being Sovereign, as we've sung about, crown him with many crowns, Jesus could have stopped it at any point. But he chose not to stop it at any point. He chose to experience death on the cross. Why did he choose to experience death on the cross? That first phrase tells us why. He suffered or he died for our sins once and for all so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. The reason Jesus experienced death, folks, is because you and I are sinners. I find it fascinating and gloriously wonderful and a great truth That at any point in Jesus' ministry, at any point in Jesus' Passion Week, he could have stopped the presses. He could have stopped the events that were in front of him. He could have changed the course of history and said, I'm not going to do this. I don't have to do this. I'm in charge. You do what I say. He could have done that. But had he done that, generations and generations of people like you and me would stand condemned in our sins. The reason Jesus allowed those Roman authorities to nail nails through his wrists, the reason he allowed them to beat his back with a whip, the reason he allowed them to mock him with a crown of thorns, the reason he allowed his execution is because you and I are sinners. And the only way our sins could be dealt with, the only way our sins could be forgiven, the only way our sins could be washed away is if someone perfect, if a perfect sacrifice stood in the gap between us and God. And so Jesus experienced death for our sins. He was willing to suffer so that you and I could be forgiven. Some of you in this room need to be reminded of that. That the sins you've committed, the sins I've committed, the, the way we've, we've broken God's law, what does that mean? That's why Jesus died on the cross. He died for that anger and he died for that lust and he died for that dis- disobedience. He died for that rebellion. He died for those lies. He died for those sins so that those sins could be washed. And the beautiful thing about that is now when we're under the blood of Jesus, when we've been cleansed and forgiven by the blood of Jesus, God no longer sees us in our sinful state. He sees us as people who are forgiven and cleansed because Jesus experienced death for us. He didn't die for any other reason. 
He didn't die. Yes, he's an example. He's a model. He's a glorious testimony of love. But he didn't die primarily for those reasons. He died because you and I are sinners. And the privilege that we get is we get the forgiveness of Jesus because he experienced death. Christ experienced death for our sins. Not only that, though, Christ experienced resurrection for our life. And really, this is the the third of three specific instances where Peter dives into Jesus in the book of 1 Peter. He's talked about Jesus being an example and a substitute in chapter 2. He talked about Jesus going to the cross and bringing us into a relationship with himself in chapter 1. And here in chapter 3, he gets into Jesus looking at him from the perspective of his death on the cross, but not just his death, his resurrection. The second aorist passive phrase, verb, that's used to describe an experience that happened to Jesus also comes in the latter part of verse 18. So you have the phrase being put to death in the flesh. And then the next phrase, but made alive in the spirit, that's also an aorist passive. It it means this, that God is the one who acted upon Jesus. And God is the one who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, made Jesus alive. God took his one and only son, Jesus... And Jesus, in his human flesh, in the humanity in which he lived for more than 30 years on planet Earth, in his human flesh, he died. When he was on the cross, he died. He breathed his last. He gave up his life. And he was put in a grave. Really dead. My boys like to play video games. And if you know anything about video games, you know that in video games you die. But you get another life, and another life, and another life, and another life, and another life. And in video games, you never really die. And so my boys have gotten to the phrase, gotten used to the phrase, uh, we're dead dead. Which means you're really dead. It's not just dead, it's dead dead. You're dead. There's no coming back from this one. Well, if we wanted to use that phrase of Jesus in this context, it would be exactly right. Jesus was dead. Dead just like any of us will die. Dead just like any of, our, any of our loved ones have died. He was dead. He was in the grave. But God did something wonderful. God made Jesus alive in the Spirit. In other words, God acted upon Jesus in a glorious way to bring Jesus back from the dead. You can see illustrations of this when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus raised the widow's Uh, the widow's son in name, when he raised him from the dead, Jesus spoke and they were raised again. But get this, Jesus was dead in the grave. He didn't resurrect himself. I I, I guess in a technical sense that's possible, but he isn't the one who did that. the, The verb that Peter uses is a passive, meaning that Jesus was acted upon. So what did God do? He spoke down, sent his spirit down, and he raised Jesus from the dead. He made Jesus alive. He resurrected him. Now, why would, why would God do that? Well, of course, we're going to celebrate that at Easter. And next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at a, a several passages of Scripture, really, where Peter meets the risen Jesus. And Peter had gone through some really difficult times during Jesus' Passion Week. I mean, he had bragged on himself and he had said he'd never deny Jesus. He'd go to Jesus, go to, uh, to death uh, for Jesus. And of course, we know Peter, you know, botched all of those, told lies, wasn't truthful. And then he met the risen Jesus and everything changed. And we have this glorious letter from Peter. Why did he change? Well, he met the risen Jesus. He met a Jesus that wasn't dead. He met a Jesus that was alive. And that Jesus is raised to life 
gives us the glorious privilege of experiencing eternal life. I want you to grasp this. The reason that you and I can go through a year like we've gone through, uncertainty, isolation, depression, frustration, difficulty, health challenges, fears. The reason we can go through all that and still have a smile on our face is because we have life. Folks, you and I as followers of Jesus don't have death. We have life. And when Jesus saves us and cleanses us from our sin, that life, that eternal life doesn't begin when you die. You get that, right? That eternal life begins when you become born again, when you're made alive. And it's beautiful that Peter would use very similar language to what Paul uses when he talks about us being made alive in Ephesians chapter 2. God made Jesus alive through the Holy Spirit. And guess what God does when he brings you and I to salvation? He makes us alive through the Holy Spirit and he gives us life. Life that lets us smile when we go through challenges. Life that gets us through and life that we look forward to. Folks, you and I may one day be dead. But to borrow my son's phrases, we won't be dead dead. We will be alive with God because Jesus is alive with God. God raised Jesus from the dead. Christ experienced resurrection so that you and I can have life. That's not the only phrase that he uses here. Christ also experienced um, going into heaven. Get this. Christ experienced the ascension for our victory. He experienced the ascension for our victory. Now, if you look all the way down into verse 22, we see that other aorist passive verb that describes an experience that Jesus had. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him? So so here's what happened. God acted upon Jesus to raise him from the dead, and God acted upon Jesus to bring him into heaven. He has gone into heaven as a passive, meaning that God brought him into heaven, and it's something that Jesus experienced. Now, if we're not careful, sometimes we gloss over the ascension texts in the New Testament. We kind of, okay, we know he's in heaven, but what does that really mean? Well, that he's gone into heaven means that we have victory. In fact, if you go all the way back to that second phrase, it it is because Jesus was made alive that he went to preach to the spirits in prison. And as, as best I can tell, here's what I think, and I could be wrong because as we learned, there are a whole lot of other combinations of possibilities for that. But here's what I think. I think Jesus went and preached to demonic spirits who are in prison some way and declared victory to them. I think he went and said to them, hey, listen, here's what you thought would happen if you and your minions put me on the cross. But what actually happened when I went to the cross is that I paid for the sins of all those in the world and anyone who will put their faith and trust in me, they move out of your kingdom and they come into my kingdom. And you know what, folks? You demons, you devils, you, you devil, you Satan, you've lost. I've won. And it's a declaration of victory. That Jesus went into heaven reflects that. Notice what the phrase says, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. That's That's a figurative language acknowledging that Jesus is at God's place of authority. God, the right hand picture is a picture of authority. It's a picture of power. It's a picture of kingdom. It's a picture of sovereignty. Jesus is there at God's hand of power. Notice what it says. 
with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So here's what it means. Christ experienced ascension for our victory. For the victory he won and the victory we get to experience. This ascension terminology says very, three very clearly specific things for you and I as followers of Jesus. It says something about a vindication of Jesus' work. I want you to think about this for a second. This really fits within the context of 1 Peter. Peter's told us that we're to submit to the government. Peter told slaves were to submit to masters. And Peter used Jesus as his example there. He says about wives that they're to submit to husbands. Why did he use all that submission language? Because Jesus submitted to authorities and powers on the cross. But Peter makes a switch here. He, he turns things around. He says Jesus experienced all of this suffering. He experienced death. He experienced resurrection. He submitted himself. But guess what? He is vindicated. His work is vindicated. Why is his work vindicated? His work is vindicated because now he is at the right hand of power. God's right hand of power. And all those angels, all those authorities, all those powers, whether they're human powers and authorities or whether they're demonic powers and authorities, are subjected to him. The one who submitted himself voluntarily is now in charge absolutely. The, the one who bowed himself before authority so that we could be saved now has rule over every one of those authorities and he's in charge. In other words, what God is saying to us is that the work of Jesus submitting is vindicated by Jesus being ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the throne of God. Al Mohler says this about the doctrine of the ascension. He says, without the ascension of Jesus, the gospel possesses no present power. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, he inaugurated a new age of hope founded upon his completed ministry. So Jesus saved us, redeemed us. Now he's at the right hand of God, acting as authority and sovereign and rule over everything, serving as an intercessor on our behalf. So Jesus' work is vindicated. Also, Jesus has sovereignty over every power. Man, this is good news. Sometimes we wonder what in the world is going on around us. I mean, the world is in a crazy place. And it just seems that if we, if we pay any more attention, it's going to get crazier. I mean, we go from, from uh, evil shooting to another evil shooting. We go from people who are completely lost, lo have lost it, and they act in a violent, evil way to another person who does it for maybe a different reason, but it's the same evil outcome. We see politicians go from one side of the aisle to another side of the aisle, make one argument to another argument. We look around us and we know there's demonic influence in the world because of all the vileness and the wickedness and the evil, and we wonder what's going on. And we're right to wonder what's going on. But while we're wondering what's going on, we need to remember there's someone who's in charge and he's got everything under control. may not look like it, at least from our standpoint. But I want to tell you, this is an encouraging, glorious truth that would have been just as encouraging for the people that first read 1 Peter. Because they would have been looking around and seeing a crazy Emperor Nero who was just out of his mind and within a few short years was going to persecute the church, crucify Peter upside down, and do all sort of evil, wicked things. The early church was going to suffer. And you know what they knew? They knew that Jesus is in charge. He's sovereign. He's in control. And here's something else the ascension means. It means that uh, heaven is our home. I want you to catch this. Jesus went to be with the Father 
And that's where he resides. And that's the place of his authority and his kingdom. And one day he's taken us there. That fits Peter's pilgrim language very, very well. Peter's told us over and over again that that we're pilgrims. That we're just traveling through. This world is not our home. The things that we experience here are devastating. But this isn't our primary abode. This isn't our permanent residence. This isn't the place we're looking forward to. And some of you say amen because you know what you're going through today and you don't really want to go back through that tomorrow, but you're going to have to go back through it tomorrow. Hey, listen, there's some hope. There's something to look forward to. And Jesus ascending, God raising him and putting him at the right hand of power gives us the privilege to know that there's something better that we have to look forward to. Let me tell you what that means for you. If you're an unbeliever, what do I mean by being an unbeliever? If you have not trusted Jesus alone to be your savior, then today is the day of your salvation. Listen, Jesus experienced death so that your sins could be forgiven. Jesus experienced resurrection so that you could have life. Life that begins today, an eternal life that can begin at this moment and last forever and forever. And Jesus experienced going to heaven so that you could have a home in heaven. I want to tell you, if you've not trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you can say something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I can't save myself. I put my trust in you alone. I thank you, Jesus, that you died for my sins. I thank you that you rose from the dead so that I could have life. I thank you that you're in heaven so that I can be with you there one day. Will you forgive me? And will you cleanse me? And will you save me? If you prayed a prayer like that, or would like to pray a prayer like that, I would encourage you to text the number that you're going to see on your screen in just a few moments. You can let us know, hey, I'm interested in knowing more about Jesus or I prayed to trust Jesus and I want to know more. I want some help in this new Christian experience. You text us, we'll reach out to you, we'll communicate with you and let you know how you can be a follower of Christ. For those of you that are here in the room, for those of you that are watching and you're settled, you know that your salvation has been secured. I want to tell you, there's some really good news. Listen, we can celebrate We can partake of the Lord's Supper. And you got some elements of the Lord's Supper when you came in. You can celebrate in worship. Listen, your sins that we're going to think about in just a moment, they're gone. Jesus cleansed you of them. Listen, that, that life that you're living that doesn't feel much like life. Hey, listen, there's an eternal life to come. We can celebrate the life to come. And, and, and goodness gracious, we can look forward to heaven. That's worth us worshiping. Can I get an amen? By way of testimony, we're going to worship by celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're going to honor and glorify Christ, praise Him, confess, think on Him deeply by celebrating the Lord's Supper. If you will, take those elements that you got in front of you, and and you can take that uh, top layer. It's a little plastic layer. Just pull it back very carefully so you can expose the bread there. I'm going to partake of that in just a moment. Let me say this to those of you that are in the room, those of you that are watching. If you have some elements with you and and you're partaking or if you're in the room, you do not have to be a member at Wilkesboro Baptist Church to participate in the Lord's Supper. But I would say that you need to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, It doesn't matter for you if you're not a follower of Jesus. You need to be cleansed and forgiven. It's meaningful for us that are believers because Jesus' blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. Jesus' body was broken, so he suffered so that we could have 
life and life eternal. It's meaningful. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Those of you in the room, uh, you, you have masks on. You can kind of unstrap those as we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. Those of you that are at home can get that, that uh, top ready and the bread ready. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say a word of prayer, uh, a prayer of thanksgiving for Jesus and for his suffering. And as I do, you thank God. You also confess to God. If there's something that is hindering your spiritual walk, now's the time for you to think on it, confess it, and be thankful that on the cross so many years ago, Jesus already died to cleanse you from it. Lord God, I thank you that so many years ago, you let your son experience suffering and death at the hands of Roman authorities, at the hands of Jewish religious leaders. You let him suffer. You let him die so that my sins can be forgiven, so that my selfishness, my pride, my arrogance, all of those things, Lord, that I don't do right so that they can be cleansed. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sent your son Jesus to be my savior, my substitute, to die for my sins. And Lord God, as we partake of this bread, we partake out of gratitude and worship for what you've done so that we could experience life. We thank you in Jesus' name. If you will, go ahead and peel back that next layer just to expose the juice. You don't have to pull it all the way off. You can pull it off just a little bit so that you can drink. Just think about this. Jesus not only suffered and had a broken body for our benefit, but he shed his blood for our benefit. He bled so that all our sins can be washed. He bled and died knowing that he would be raised again so that we could experience new life. He went to be with his Father in heaven to give us an affirmation and a testimony that he has it. He's in control. He rules And whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, we testify of the Lord's death till he comes. And you know what? He's coming back one day. And he's not coming back uh, to suffer on a cross anymore. He's coming back to rule as a king. And we'll rule with him. We'll be with him. Folks, we partake in worship. Let me pray, and then we'll partake of the juice. Lord Jesus, we come to you in this moment, and we're thankful that you were willing to let your blood be shed for our sins. We're thankful that you were that perfect sacrifice, that once and for all sacrifice. It never has to happen again so that my sins and our sins can be cleansed. And Lord Jesus, we're thankful that your death on the cross and your resurrection and your ascension means that you're in control, that you rule and that you reign. And that we partake, when we partake today, when we celebrate this Lord's table We do so celebrating that you're in control, that you rule, that you reign, that you're coming back again, and that, Lord, we can count on you and depend on you. So, Lord, we celebrate and worship in Jesus' name. I want to thank you for participating with me. I want to thank you for being here to worship Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If there's something going on in your life, and you'd like to talk to us about, or if maybe you're here and you'd like to talk to us about salvation, I want to encourage you to uh, catch me or catch one of our pastoral staff before you leave and talk to us about faith and eternal life. 
We're going to close our worship service with a song. A song of testimony and worship. A tremendously appropriate worship and testimony because we celebrated Jesus who is and who rules. We celebrated the Lord's Supper. So I'd like to ask you to do me a favor. I know it's kind of hard to worship with all your heart when you've got a mask on. But your heart's really not affected by your face or by your masks. Worship with your heart. Worship with everything you got because Jesus is worthy of our praise. Whether you've got a mask on or don't, worship to glorify Him. Stand with me as we sing this song of testimony. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.